Jeremy, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for recording the episode. I'm uh, I'm super excited about the conversation we're going to have today because I told you as we were getting ready and having some of the chats, you know, you, you sent me a little bit of your background. You've had an interesting life, <laughs> to great. say the least. Yeah, yeah. So uh, folks listening probably don't know who you are, but give us a 10,000 foot view of Jeremy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, it, it's been an interesting uh, journey and it continues to be one for sure. So I guess to start from the from the top and then kind of work back a little bit. Uh, so I'm a, a, a college professor. Uh, I teach at Belmont University and I teach in communication studies and corporate communication. And um, I'll just say this at the beginning, if you told me when I was at, at any point in high school, maybe before that college, that, that I would I would be a college professor, I would have sworn you were talking about somebody two or three lifetimes removed from me. I'll yep. put it that way. Um, matter of fact, even just starting in college, it, it, there was nothing, there was no glimmer, at least not, not in my mind, uh, that, that I would ever end up here. But in addition to teaching, uh, I also um, own a business. I run my own leadership development business and consulting where I um, work with uh, c- c- businesses of all sizes to, to do that work, um, training leaders, as well as do building leadership programs from the ground up through the consulting part of it. And, and then on top of that, uh, lead a couple of different ministries at our church. And so again, any of those things, if they looked like anything that would have been important, I would have said, there's no way that yeah. would have ever happened to me, but, um, it's, it's just been amazing. It's been a good journey and I'm just, I'm, I'm still on it. So excited to be here. That's exciting. Yeah. So, all right, you've got a PhD, so you're Dr. Jeremy. All right. Yeah. You sent me your transcript. <laughs> You emailed me your transcript from college, and there's no way I can say this besides you were a terrible student. Yeah, just say it, man. I know, I know. Man, oh man, I was looking at it. I was like, this guy got a PhD. So I'm talking about like what a 1.7 GPA or something, and academic probation. Yeah. How does that transition happen, man? It's funny too because I when I sent you that, I I, you know I took the PDF and I like circled some stuff, and and then I got to thinking. I don't even think he needs me to circle stuff. He can, there's enough, <laughs> there's enough bad in the first couple of pages where I don't have to highlight it, man. It's crazy. Um, actually it reminds me when I, when I first got to, um, to where I did my PhD was at, which was at Purdue, literally my advisor sat down and she was looking at that, that same transcript and she, she sat right in front of me and said, how'd you get in here? <laughs> and I said, that, I said, I don't know, but you wanted me here anyway. So man, it's crazy because yeah. So my, I was a fairly good, I was a fairly good student, a fairly decent high school student as well. I went to a, um, um, a private school, pretty oh. good Christian private school in Texas, and I made pretty good grades, was never like super motivated. Um, so when I graduated high school, my parents, um, you know, always taught me a lot of discipline and always pushed me, but they never, it was never a given that you will go to college when you graduate high school. Okay. It was never... Um, Again, it was it was an option. It was a college high school's not optional, but college is. Neither of my parents have, have a college uh, had at the time, which we can come back to that perhaps had a college degree, um, and so it wasn't that they didn't value it. But like for instance, now in my household, going to college isn't an option. Like yeah. girls will go. That was just never the thing, and at least from from my memory growing up. So when I went when I graduated from from a from high school, I, I went to college because that's what you do after high school and. Where'd you go? I went to Texas State okay. University, yeah, which was, you know, right down the road. So it was 20 minutes. I could commute, um, looked at some other schools, but I, I wasn't ever really serious about 
you know, making college the, the thing I'm going to devote my life to in the next four years. I was just sort of figuring things out as I went, which now that I'm a college professor and I advise students is how a lot of people are when they start. I was just extremely uh, directionless. I mean, it directionless. So a lot of those lower, a lot of those many semesters of low GPA were just a matter of going to class, kind of going through the motions. And, you know, I think I had, I was on probation a couple of semesters. I think at one point my GPA got so low, I was suspended. <laughs> I mean, it's really bad. Like I, I, now that I've been teaching and advising students full time for eight years, I've never seen a student with that, that bad of a transcript as I had. Does it give you a little more sympathy or empathy towards the students who are struggling though, when you're advising them? I think so. I mean, I, I have, had, I did, don't get me wrong. I have, I have students that struggle mm-hmm. and that, that sit in front of me and that, that have, that are, that were or, or are about to go on to academic probation. And I'll share that with them directly. In fact, just recently, I actually showed one of them my transcript and I said, look, you and I are a lot more alike than you may think. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? Because in her mind, on zero dimensions, are we anything alike? Right. Yeah. And I just walked her through it and I was like, look, I'm not trying to inspire you to be a college professor. I'm just saying you can get really low when it comes to academic standards and then get, get, high, back, up. get back up to where you want to be or maybe even way beyond. So bottom line for me is I just didn't know what I wanted to do vocationally, not even job wise, let alone vocation and career, you know, calling and those kind of things that I'm passionate about now. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and that just took me down a lot of different directions. I mean, I, at one point I, I was interested in law. Uh, I was interested in pharmacy because my parents have, have a pharmaceutical background. My, mm-hmm. Both of my parents were, uh, my dad was in pharmaceutical sales for the longest time. Um, and as well as business development within and was very successful at that. My mom w- is, was a pharmacist until a pharmacy technician until she retired and they owned a pharmacy for a little bit. And so all without a college degree, all, all without college degrees. Yeah. Wow. Talk about a gifted salesman and your dad <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a hard worker and your mom. Just a lot of a lot of grit and gr- and, and grinding, you yeah. know. And so that was, you know, back before it was like people would hashtag on my grind all the time. Like yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. were doing it right. They were yeah. doing it and, and taught me that. So while I was a total slacker as a college student, I was a very hard worker. If that's if that makes sense, just I didn't find my interest, which I now again as a professor I realize is so important, regardless of where it may take you career wise find the interest. I was a very hard worker. I, my wife and I joke about this now that we, we try every time we try to count up how many jobs I've had, we find a new one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, done, I've done everything from stocking shelves in a pharmacy at like 13 to work in, you know, any kind of fast food. I was a waiter at Denny's in the night shift, so okay. which was a, about as pleasant as you can imagine. Yeah. That uh, sounds super fun. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so I waited tables and I was a telemarketer. I mean, literally like think about the positions that most people really don't like. Yeah. If you're a consumer, I was that Yeah, <laughs> telemarketer waiter in the night. I mean, just all these. And so I was a hard worker and it just took me finding, you know, finding a topic that I was interested in that I could apply that grind to. What was that topic? It was communication. Okay. My first. So I, if you, you know, again, you saw the transcript. So I never even sniffed an A. I don't know if I sniffed a B until I was like 21. And so I took a communication studies course. It was called Fundamentals of Human Communication. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I was just like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I had no idea at the time what it would lead to, but it was an interpersonal communication. It was like a hybrid interpersonal, small group, and then speech. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I did, again, had no idea, but all the topics made sense to me. And I thought, oh, this explains why at Thanksgiving we fight about this or why I love just mm-hmm. sitting down with my dad and talking about this or why, 
working in groups really stinks. And I was like, man, all these really practical things are now coming out and there's research and theory behind all that stuff. Again, it was all seeds of what I'm really passionate about now as a, as a college professor, but just, it was yeah. an interest that was it sparked. Clicked. It clicked. I made my first A in okay. that class. Uh, right about the same time I was also studying um, uh, the pharmacy exam to be certified. And at this point, keep in mind, again, I had never even been an A in college, let alone passed what would end up being by far the hardest test probably still to this day I've ever taken. Passed it. Not only passed it, did exceptionally well on the pharmacy test, got certified, did all that. So that was the first time that I saw that I could, at a high level beyond high school, really do this thing called studying and achieving. Yeah. I just... I mean, you, and you know this as, as somebody who learns a lot. It's like a lot of it's about learning the process of learning. Yeah, learning how to, how to learn. Yeah, and, and internalizing it, not just like memorizing it, but like it truly. So all those things kind of came together when I was 21 or 22, and I finally started kind of finding what I wanted to do. And, you know, that's, I guess the rest is history. But I, you know, I, I remember sitting in front of one of my, a, a person who ended up becoming my mentor maybe as a junior. And she was like, have you ever thought about grad school? And I literally said, what's grad school? Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. I was just that, I was that ignorant about even, even, even as somebody who was doing well enough for someone to notice. Yeah. Like I've had students that, that, that are not very good students, to be honest with you, have said, have said the words grad school to me. And I kind of want to like, I have to like hold back a chuckle, but I was, she was coming to me and I had no idea what it was. <clears throat> That's interesting what you say there, because so I've thought about this a lot. And maybe we can have a little dialogue here. Yeah. When it comes to learning, there are certain topics that in school I absolutely hated. Like mm -hmm. any of the sciences, biology, anything like that. Gosh, I found that so incredibly boring. Mm -hmm. But I will find myself reading a biology book as an adult or I'll listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube video. And I think back and I'm like, how did you make this boring? Yeah. How is this possible? Yeah. How is this boring? Yeah. Because I learned through stories. That's why I, cr I absolutely crushed history, social studies, reading. Yeah. I mean, I demolished yeah. those categories. Yeah, but when it when it was something where I had to – I don't even know what I'm trying to explain yeah. here really. But do you see what I'm yeah, trying absolutely. to say? When, and when you say how did you make those boring, are you talking about you or the professor that was teaching it? The professor and myself. Okay. It's a, I mean, it's a two-way street. It's, it's an effort. I mean, it's yeah. not that I made bad, bad grades. Mm -hmm. But it was so boring. I had to force yeah. myself through it somehow. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the reason I asked that question is because the you in that, in that question matters, right? Mm -hmm. If you're talking about the professor, that's one thing. If you're talking about the student, that's another thing. And it's both parties, right? Um, yeah. I forget where I heard this or exactly, but you'll kind of get the idea. But it's, um, you know, what you get out of this is not about my preparation. It's about your expectation. Mm, okay. So the reason I mentioned that is because I think, and I think this, some of the science in terms of how we learn and like neuroscience and stuff is starting to show us this, but we, the, the point at which we encounter certain topics, sometimes the timing is just right. Mm. Right. So at the time, maybe because you were taking five classes, six classes, you, in the point in your life, you had a natural bend away from the sciences and toward these other types of things, so-called soft sciences, right. Mm -hmm. and social science, those kind of things. That was what you were interested in. Now that you have built more capacity to learn, you can go back into those more maybe harder science, more complex types of things and say, man, this is amazing. Whereas it maybe wasn't to you back then, even though it was the same, same content. So, you know, our minds can kind of process things at different. That's why we have aha moments and insights, mm -hmm. right? Like you can read, I think about just like the, 
like the, the Bible, for instance, you know, I read, read, read the Bible a lot, you know, often do a daily devotional and I read the same thing 10 times and it's going to be different a year from now than yeah. it was today. You get 10 Just aha moments. New insights, right? And so, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and I, so I double majored in, in college and economics was my primary major and then political science was my secondary major. Yeah. Political science definitely is one of those soft sciences, as you would yeah. describe it. Economics, your first two years of college is. The second two years, it's basically calculus. Yeah, so that's really hard. Yeah, hard. so, yeah. I mean, by, by the time you get into 400-level classes, you're ex- almost exclusively math. Yeah. But I crushed it. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. But, uh, again, I think back at – it is interesting how we learn and how it our is, brains yeah. evolve to, to think in different ways. Um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to take a no, topic. No, that's really good. I mean, I think that we've always sort of wondered and kind of intuitively known why people get insights and get interested in different interests at different times. The cool stuff is, is really coming out now, a lot of the brain science in terms of how, you know, our brains change depending on how we win and how often we, in, you know, encounter information. Not only that, but like as we join sort of communities of interests that are also mm-hmm. interested in those different kinds of things. Right. Then, we're, you know, our brains sort of start looking similar in terms of our, our knowledge base and our interests and those kind of things. So anyway, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, one of my favorite classes at UT when I went there was um, it was by oh, I think her last name was Watermaker. I'm going to butcher this. I am so sorry, but she was an awesome professor. Yeah. yeah. And it was uh, a basic speech class. Yeah. And so I'm one of those weird people where I have zero recollection of any point in time where I was afraid of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Like even as a child, yeah. I would hold, you know, political speeches basically to yeah, random yeah. strangers on the nice. street. Yeah. I never had that phobia. Yeah. So that was, that made it easy. I'd never had a fear to overcome in that class, but just the art of communication mm-hmm. is really what drew me into it. And nice. the art of, uh, I did something intuitively. So we, we had to prepare our first speech. I remember this like it was yesterday. And there was probably 30 people in the class. It was one of the smaller classes. And we all gave our very first speech, which was our first grade. So it was probably three or four weeks into the course. And at the end of it, she said, there was one person that gave a speech today that left the podium. And it was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she went on a whole lesson about that. But it's not like I knew to do that consciously mm-hmm. it was just something said i'm going to walk around because i'm talking to a crowd yeah what have you noticed in your world teaching and communication and teaching helping people take that confidence and that initiative that we talk about in, oh, yeah. in confidence initiative persistence yeah um what are you noticing with younger folks what are you noticing teaching what are some of the the, the hacks almost that people yeah. can use to get better at communicating it's great yeah it's such an important great question and The experience you described is interesting to me because I was the opposite, despite the fact that I'm a communication professor now and teach speech in person. I teach speech online. I do trainings for executives on speech. I mean, I speak a lot in front of people. I had I had very high communicate, very high speech anxiety when I took that same class that I mentioned that I got an A in Mm -hmm. very high speech anxiety. Why do you think that is? Because a lot of people have that. They, oh, that is a very common phobia. You know, the, here's the here's the joke. So the 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 number one fear people have is public speaking. Number two is death. <laughs> okay. So what, what that tells me is that you'd rather, if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I think that was like a Seinfeld spin thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a huge thing, and it, and it doesn't matter if you are a 18 year old college student or I was just at a company literally this morning. Somebody who's been in business for 
is, is really high up in a company, afraid of public speaking, doesn't matter. Some of it's biological. Some of it, you, you know, you think, you know, we know about like fight, flight, mm-hmm. freeze, fight, yeah. flight, freeze. People either freeze or they just fly away, you know, or fly away from, I mean, a lot of it has to do with biology in terms of our, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, the wire fear centers. Brain, yeah. Yeah. The lizard brain, you know, kind of tells you this is, you know, this is a threat. And so you need to run away or freeze. So, but biologically, what would cause somebody to not have that fear? If somebody's more naturally, um, well, this is an interesting one. I'll, I'll sort of try to remember to circle back to that. Um, if somebody has a natural, um, where, where in, in, in the face of, or in the prospect of any kind of speaking, um, if they naturally, if they naturally don't freeze up and they, you know, if they're just more outgoing, I guess you could, part of it, you could explain by introversion and extroversion, Yeah. but that only does so much because you have people that who are completely or very introverted and they nevertheless do a lot of training and speaking. Yeah. The difference is how they feel afterwards. Mm. Do they get energy from it or do they feel drained? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and just to circle back to your, your follow-up, you can have naturally, naturally um, a lot of fear towards speaking and you can overcome that through just a lot of practice. That's how it was for me. Hmm. So I was, and, and some of it, you know, we could sort of parse out terms, you know, there's shyness, there's communication apprehension, there's willingness, low willingness or high willingness to communicate. Technically those are all separate, different you know, constructs, but different conversation for another different day. But anyway, but still, um, I think for me, I was a little bit nervous up front, you know, in front of people and also just kind of a low willingness to communicate. I was never shy, but like, I didn't, I was never the student that raised my hand a lot in class. I just was kind of either listening or not in that class. It was the first one where I was really tuning in. The professor you mentioned reminds me, my professor was, was Tim Mote. um, And he was just a dynamic speaker and he just had a way of like telling stories like you were talking about that just, it made everybody, it, it, it let everybody get into that proverbial dining room table where everything he's talking about applies. Yeah. Right. Next week at Thanksgiving, last week at whatever, you could just imagine it. Um, and so I just, I was nervous to speak, but I just built the capacity to do it just by doing it. That's why I tell people when I train them is you're not going to want to hear this, but the best way to get me to be a better speaker is just to do it a lot. Well, it's, it's overcoming that anxiety yeah. of putting yourself out there. Cause fundamentally what's happening in our brain is Whenever we have some sort of phobia that's socially related, we're, we're basically our lizard brain is scared of being ostracized from the group. Absolutely. That's yeah. fundamentally what's happening. Yeah. So overcoming yeah. that fear, it's not a rational fear of mm. – I've done trainings where I tell people, hey, whenever you're feeling some irrational fear, it's okay to out loud speak to yourself and say, hey, brain, I appreciate you trying to protect me. Yeah, right. This is not a reasonable fear. Yeah. I understand. It's okay to go back. And relax. Right. And it works. It does. It's crazy, but it works. It does. I mean, some of those techniques out there are pretty cool. You know, you, you can, you've got like your pot, you know, your reinforcement kind of self-talk. You've got like your, um, which the self-talk stuff back in the day was like really crazy and kind of kooky. And now the neuroscience supports it. I mean, thinking you know, grow rich is a classic. It's a hundred years old and people yeah. criticize it for 90 of the hundred years. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, you have like your, forget the term, but basically we're, you know, the, the visualization, right. The, the, the one the the fancy term for just doing things and getting out of your comfort zone is called systematic desensitization, right? Where you yeah. just do it so many times that you just become numb in a positive way. It doesn't bother you anymore. The way that I, you know, for me, I, I the when you think about it, when we're anxious to, to communicate with anybody, either one on one like we're doing in a group or to a, to a, you know to to a big group, uh, an audience, 
we make it about ourselves. So we get nervous. The more you make it about the other person or the audience, it eases the nerves. Make it others focused. Make it others focused, right? What's the audience? That's the thing. Anytime I get nervous to speak in front of groups, I'm like, okay, how can I make this most valuable to them? And it, if nothing else, it, for that minute, it gets the focus off of me, helps me to prepare to, to, to serve the audience's needs. So that's one, I guess, to answer your question, I guess one one hack, right, is when we're communicating with people, uh, the mo- at, to the extent it's possible is you know, to kind of get into the other person and say, how am I going to help this person? And that yeah. turns out to be handy, whether you're um, you know, helping a, helping a client in whatever industry you're in, if you're sitting down to, to just listen to somebody who's had help, right. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, who's had a hard time and needs help. Like, you know, a lot of times I think, especially as men, we can have the tendency whenever somebody comes to us with an issue, we want to fix it. Correct. Sometimes people just want to, just want to, like, I don't want you to give me instrumental support. I want emotional support. Correct. So, but you can't do that. And you can't know the difference unless you're just sitting there and listening. So your question was like, what kind of hacks? I think that's, that's the one that's, that we're kind of circling back to is just to like, make be it aware, about, being aware and just making it about the other person. So yeah. go back, go back to what you just said about men want to fix things yeah. because that's a big issue between men and women in relationships. Yeah. You know, a lot of times maybe your wife wants to come to you and she just wants to tell you right. and your first instinct is to offer a solution. Then she's pissed off. Yeah. Or you go to her and you tell her something and she's empathizing with you and you're like, I, what, are, how will we fix this? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk about that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, I, this is one of those topics that if you were to walk out and talk to 10 people on the street, they would all know what you're saying. Yeah. And I've always had, you know, so everybody has kind of an intuitive understanding on it. I just also happened to do some research on this when I was in school and, and specifically in the pharmacy where we looked at like different kinds of social support you can provide somebody. So it's interesting, the research on it, but, but basically without getting into any of that, um, I think stereotypically just putting people sort of putting, you know, uh, labels on it. Men are usually more instrumental and want to just fix things, get down to the point. Women usually like to talk it out. It's not always the case. I mean, there's a lot of times, matter of fact, I'm, I'm oftentimes a lot more of a emotionally expressive person as opposed to my wife, who's fairly concrete and likes things black and white. Yeah. So we don't fall on those typical lines, but nevertheless, we can have, we can have conflict in a different, in a specific situation. If she comes to me and I'm like, well, why don't you just, you know, go and do this. You're, you've been going this. I don't recommend that, but she just maybe, want, maybe wants to talk it out. And then there's times when I just want her to kind of listen. And she's like trying to give me specific answers. And that's tough, especially if it's not the answer that you think you want anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's the worst part is I do want to touch on this because yeah. I think it's a good segue. So yeah. It seems social anxiety is just through the roof in society amongst young people in general. Yeah. Okay. And I have beat this dead horse over and over again on the podcast, but I absolutely despise what social media has done to us. You deal with college students every day. Now they're not necessarily millennials. They're more Gen Z at this point, but still they, you know, grew up with technology. They, um, you know, they're constantly comparing themselves to somebody else and another image that they can see immediately that, you know, hijacks their dopamine receptors and just takes them to another planet. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing? What scares you? What solutions have you come up with so far? Man, it's awesome. Really important. And I don't know if there's many questions that are more important than that. I mean, in general, right? In yeah. Society, Especially for a communication professor. It's huge. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the students that I'm working with now are Gen Z, but I just finished my 13 year, 13th year of teaching either as a student, a grad student or full time. And so I've seen 
I guess, you know, a good, you know, healthy chunk of millennials as well as now some Gen Z. It's, it does seem to be getting worse. Um, the, the, it's one of those things is, is anxiety and comparison getting worse or is it just that, you know, well, I'm no, we're noticing it more now or, or we're willing off? to talk about it. Well, talk about it. Yeah. Um, so what were the three, what scares you? What were the, sorry, what, what have you noticed? What scares yeah. you and what solutions have you found so far? I do. I think I have noticed. Um, absolutely. You, you said it. I think the root of a lot of the, of the issues is just the comparison. I think people are always on, I was having a conversation and you can, you can sort of tease this out by social media tool if you want, but we can sort of lump it together. But you know, there's a lot of research out there that's, that's looking at rates of anxiety and depression and even like child and teen suicide as a result of very specific social media. So for instance, there's an article that just came out recently that looks at um, childhood social childhood, child uh, suicide and Snapchat use Mm. just one specific tool. I mean, the, the connections are very precise. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, interesting with what, this is what kind of tells you what, why this is important. A lot of the big researchers who are driving the research behind social media and negative effects are former, former engineers. Well, I mean, the form, one of the founders of Facebook has explicitly said in an interview not too long ago, his kids don't use Facebook. Yeah. His kids don't use social media. Yeah. So like the former, a former Google engineer, there's a guy I think that worked at maybe Instagram. Like these are all former engineers whose job it was. They were one of thousands of engineers whose job it was to, to get you to get on your phone and stay on it forever. Yeah. You know, what we are in, what we call now an, an attention economy, mm-hmm. right? It was agricultural, then it was manufacturing yeah. and then it was labor. Now it's not, now it's attention. Um, and so that should tell you something that these were all former engineers and now they're all under this umbrella. I don't know if they all use this term, but sort of digital ethicists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? I've, I've watched a couple of interviews with, with yeah. some of those folks. So you got like Tristan Harris and Cal Newport and some of these guys, some of them have their. Speaking of Cal, New- Cal Newport. Yeah. Man. Deep work, deep work and yeah. digital minimalism. Yeah. yeah. And what's the other one? So good. They can't ignore you. Yeah. 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 Incredible books. Absolutely. Go read them. Sorry. No, yeah. no, really good. I mean, and I, those come up, those kind of things come up a lot because like when I work with college students, their attention is so divided. And so for instance, it, it's a, it was a good, it was a good a plug that we made just cause it's, it's related. Like it's relevant. When I talk to students about their attention being everywhere, we can look at the work from deep, deep from Newport and say, man, the reason why you can't focus on your tasks, the reason why you don't realize, recognize an important email that I send you, or I don't recognize you know this directive over this directive, is because you're multitasking too much. Yep. Right. All the neuroscience shows that the more you multitask, the more it's difficult to not do that. So that kind of stuff comes up. So I noticed that a lot. Not only the comparisons, but also just the just the always on and and almost like the you know the 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 sort of the, the technology is an extension of one's body. And you see that when they pull your hand out and you got your phone in your hand, no matter where you are, it's always there and you're always checking it and you're antsy. And um, I see that, I see attention spans uh, being lowered in, in, in classes as well. Now, some of this is cultural in within the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I try to set an, I try to set the culture such that I'm not going to make you put your phone in a basket in front of the classroom so you can't look at it. Although I do believe that's a pretty good technique if you want to do that. Yeah. I've had students that tell me when they sit around at dinner tables with their friends, they all put their phones in the middle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they can't look at it. And they, what do they tell you? Nobody ever says I hated that. They always say it was the best thing we've ever did, ever done. Oh yeah. So they know, you know, they know about it. Students rarely, rarely fight with me when I talk about these negative effects because they know. 
They're aware, and I'll tell you a little experiment I've been doing the last two weeks. Yeah. So I've thought, I've actually thought about this. My wife made fun of me for it, but I said, what if I did a podcast series on Yavitsa gets a flip phone for like three weeks, and yeah. I just do a documentary on me switching from an iPhone XX Plus or whatever to a just T-Mobile yeah. flip phone or something. Yeah. But something I've been doing is I've noticed myself grabbing my phone over and over while I'm commuting. Mm. So here's how my commutes work. I listen to podcasts and I listen to audiobooks. Mm -hmm. That's it. So yeah. you can literally start yeah. and stop. None of my podcasts are going to be longer or shorter than my commute. Yeah. None of the audiobooks are. So why do I need to check my phone? I know where I'm going. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. So this is good. Yeah. Yeah. So recently, what I started doing is I've got the, like in my car in front of my shifter, I've got this little cubby thing that you can open. It's where the charger is. And you can close it. Yeah. So I've started putting both my personal phone and my work phone in that little cubby and closing it yeah. when I drop. And the amount of times I catch myself reaching down to where I would keep my phone yeah. has really disturbed me. Yeah. It's, uh, what am I going to check? I'm driving 80 miles down, miles yeah. per hour down the road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. And so, I mean, it's just like this reflex, right? It's like you get almost antsy for it if you're not. It's disgusting. It is. And I mean, Never mind the fact that it's horribly dangerous, right? We all do it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you're, you know, you, you look at like, what do they say? You know, uh, if you look at your phone for two seconds, it's, you, you, you can cover 50 to 100 feet in your car. Gosh, that's terrifying. It's terrifying, isn't it? I know. So, of course, like to answer one of your, you know, that scares me. Um, now, we, we have two kids with two small, they're girls. Um, they're, they're 10 years, the oldest one is like 10 years from driving, 11 years away from driving. I don't, I, it terrifies me to even think about what things are going to be like then as far as attention. And, yeah. And, and actually, well, we'll have automated cars. We'll yeah, that's one. true. That's true. And, <laughs> and actually the interesting thing is, you know, that there's some research that's showing like, you know, developmental delays for not, not only developmental, but just like today's 18 year olds are more like 16 year olds because they're driving later. Yeah. Some things are positive. They're having sex later. They're drinking and smoking at lower rates and all those Some things are positive. But one of the things interesting is that Teenagers don't are not in a rush to get their licenses, which blows my mind. I, I couldn't wait to get my license. I, I wanted the freedom. I know. So now it's you know, and, and a lot of it shows. A lot of people are showing now that it's just you know, people can go to Uber, no matter where you are, even in ur urban setting. I mean, in rural settings, you can you can use Uber and Lyft, and you can probably. Well, part of it was also you wanted the license to go explore. And it's not like I'm the like. It's not like I'm old, but I, we didn't get like Facebook, for example, until like junior year of high school or maybe senior year of high yeah, school. Yeah. So I was on that tail end. Yeah. Because I'm an older millennial in that sense. But yeah. um, it just the idea of having a car and being able to go explore. Yeah. Now you can just pull up Instagram. I know. Okay. So here's another thought. Okay. So when you say explore, you just mean like kind of. I would just drive through the city and just explore parts I'd never been to okay. just to learn, just so, to, yeah, just to get away and, and even get lost on purpose to find my way back. So using Instagram as a, a almost just a proxy for the experience, right? A vicarious, what's, yeah. a, what's everybody else doing? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, tr your tra it's a terrible trade, but people are trading it. Well, and it's, yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, so talk to me about this mm -hmm. communication. I feel like, as human beings, we have completely lost the art of being able to talk to each other mm -hmm. in the yeah. last 10 years. Yeah. It isn't like I, t I tell some of these younger folks, like interns at the office and things like that. Like I never really got to participate in like the Tinder bumble hinge mm -hmm. world of dating. You know, <laughs> I had to hit on a girl awkwardly at a bar. Yeah. 
Did, did you say you, you, you never got to? Was that going to be a positive? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess maybe. Who knows? Like it, it just. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to. You don't even have to call somebody. You can slide in their DMs. You can text. That <laughs> you can lose the context, the inflection, the tonality, the ability to tell a story and to to convey something to where somebody uh, takes it in a positive manner. Yeah. We've lost that. I feel like. Oh, big time. Man, I, it's really true. We have, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I think explains why people are less, I mean, more anxious, more depressed, less happy is because the most, the things that give us most, the most life, right. That give us energy that put the wind at our backs are the things that happen in real experience, right. Having a conversation with somebody actually going on vacation, not just looking at pictures of somebody else on vacation. Yeah. All those things give us life. And we're doing, trying to do, we're doing a lot of things through mediated. You, think about this. Like you, you, you watch like a concert, everybody's recording the concert instead of experiencing and enjoying the concert. Correct. Cause they want to try to get something they can put on their feet that think somebody else is going to look at. Yeah. So we're, we're just living for the wrong audiences. Um, in, in my, in my opinion on that, we've lost the art, of, art to communicate, um, with each other and just to make connections. I mean, think about it. If you have a, if you have a disagreement with somebody on a text message, which, you know, if you've, if you've, if you've had, you know, argued with somebody or just maybe an email, for instance, I don't know. Uh, if you if you were to get together with that person instead, first off, you would resolve it more quickly. You would still get frustrated, but you at the end of that could shake hands, maybe hug, whatever. And you would make a you would make a connection. You know, we just that's just one example. That would be a negative example that you could possibly turn positive. But I mean, you know, disagreements are worse when we're trying to do things through mediated ways. Um you know, we've also the example you gave of missing out, you know, in terms of the dating and stuff. We also don't have to sit and just like be, you know, if you were to wait for an elevator 20 years ago, you just waited for the elevator. You might even just sit in somebody and say, hey, how's it going, man? We never have how's to be bored. Never be bored. How's your day? Bored is a good thing. It is. Bored forces you to take action. Yeah. So do you know the... Um, uh, the researcher Manoush Zamarodi. So she has a thing called Bored and Brilliant. It was a research program. She had like 25,000 users that kind of did a cleanse. And anyway, her stuff's really good, but Bored and Brilliant was her. I forget. She might even have a book now on that topic. But bottom line is, you know, when we're bored, that's when our that's when our brain does its, its kind of sort of file, you know, is it's kind of filing what we know, right? Huh? So it's actually not only helpful in terms of our creativity, but it's, it's, um, or in terms of relaxing, but it's also helpful in terms of creativity. Mm -hmm. It allows us to kind of our brain to kind of sort, you know, almost like imagine like a file cabinet. Yeah. That's when it sorts, when it's so, so called unplugged and bored. Um, but we've lost that ability. Um, we've lost some of the spontaneity, I think, too, of just being able to communicate and sit and just have a conversation and go any which way without our minds going any which way and trying to reach for devices. Yeah. Although I still, st I, I do think sometimes you see it when people are intentional. Right. When they recognize that it can like I, I was at, I was sitting at Whole Foods this morning having coffee and I was watching That's the most college professor thing you could have. Ever ah, seen. I know. <laughs> you know, is that literally, I, you're not going to believe this. You or anybody listening this is my first time ever at Whole Foods. No, it was this morning. It was. You know why? Because I went there. I was looking for a coffee shop because my session didn't start till like 930. And I was like, let me find a good coffee shop down down there. And so I found it. And, and, and the coffee shop was in Whole Foods. Mm. So that's why I went. But anyway, I should have left that out because I don't know if it made me sound better or cooler. Without. <laughs> Bottom line is I saw these five guys and they were doing a Bible study. Okay. And they were sitting there talking and I was there for maybe an hour and a half. They were there for an hour. Not a, not a single one of them looked at their phones one yeah. time. 
So again, you see it. It's beautiful when you see it, but but that's because I'm guessing I didn't talk to them, but I'm guessing they were intentional about yeah, it. Yeah, intentional communication. Yeah. Intentional living. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You used to have to live intentionally. You had to plan out your day. You had to get things accomplished. Now it makes me sick to my stomach when I hear people talk about their job. They're like, well, the majority of my job is answering emails. I'm like, that's a terrible job. It is. You're doing you're doing a terrible job at your job because that's not your job. Okay. Not that, not what they're getting paid anything for. You can knock out all your emails at in max 45 concentrated minutes a day mm-hmm. and don't answer an email rest of the day. Yeah. And the timing in which you know, the time that you do that is also important. When Correct. You, yeah. So, um, so talk to me about this yeah. consulting firm that you have yeah. where you're really dealing with. So we've talked about dealing with college kids, young millennials, Gen Z. Yeah. Now I'm assuming in the consulting world and in the coaching world that you're doing, it's, it's, more older folks, mm-hmm. maybe older yeah. millennials, yeah. which a lot of people don't know. Millennials are like all the way to like 39, 40 almost yeah, at age. People don't realize that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm 38. So I'm right on the end, right on the, depending on whose framework you're looking at, you know, born in 80. Yeah. Usually millennials start 81, 82, 83. So yeah, they're yeah. 30, their oldest 36, 37 years old. Yeah. So which are leaders in our communities. Like, Big time. I know quite a few millionaires in their late thirties yeah. who are crushing it and running businesses. So yeah. What's uh, what have you noticed in the consulting world there? One thing that I notice, uh, yeah. So, so not only are the folks that I'm dealing with usually going to be a little bit older, but but if they're if the business has invested enough for them to be in the workshops that I'm leading, they're probably at least middle to upper management, yeah, um, or at least have been recently moved into a leadership position where they're making that transition. Um, one thing that's interesting is that they have many of the same issues that we're talking about, yeah. Um, and so as much as we want to talk about, you know, generations and you can sort of look at birth cohorts as a model to make sense of people, just like you could look at any other form of diversity, right. As a way to sort of, in some cases, stereotype and try to make sense of all this information that we're all trying to make sense of. Um, a lot of it's just time. We're all living in a time where everybody's plugged in. Um, you know, everybody's plugged in, everybody's distracted, everybody's busy. Everybody has a million different things that can be part of their busyness. Right. Um, and so I see a lot of the same issues. They, a lot of times the leaders that I train will not be as aware, for instance, of some of the dangers of some particular tools. Like, like most of my people that I deal with are not familiar with Snapchat necessarily just to pick one. Uh, So then I start talking to them about Snapchat or they have kids who are old. They all, they're old enough to have kids who are 13, 15, whatever. And they use Snapchat like crazy. Yeah. So we start talking about some of the dangers with that and, um, but yeah, so those are the, those are the folks, but they have the same issues, right? They have the same communication issues. They struggle to communicate a lot of them. Um, the thing that I try to work with, so my business, if you were to look my tagline of my business is lead authentically. Mm-hmm. And for me, often, not really just for me, but the framework that I use around authenticity is just being closely aligned to reality. Right. <laughs> so, so and, and basically to be authentic, to be a leader is to be somebody worthy of being followed. Right. And so just because you're, you're an authority figure by title doesn't make you a leader and it works both ways. There's people in companies who have no leadership title, but they're absolute leaders through their influence. Yeah. And so, um, I'll, and so one of the things that I try to deal with, with my, the people that I train is just to be authentic is, is to be present it's to be fully aligned to reality in terms of your strengths, in terms of your weaknesses, to recognize yourself as a work in progress. Mm, right? I like that. It doesn't. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you get up in front of a, 
a group that you're leading and say, ah, oh, I know I'm scared just like you. I have no idea what I'm doing because then you lose credibility. Yeah. But you do communicate in such a way from a position of integrity to say, I'm a work in progress. And, and, and these are the things that I want to work on that I want. So in my space, leadership development. So my business is Jeremy Fike leader development, not leadership development for a reason. Mm. And it's because I believe from just experience and, and just as I work through the reps with people is that to be able to, to truly develop, it's got to be about the person, not the tools. It's too often. I think training leadership, training and leadership development focuses on leadership in terms of tools Hey, try this, you know, this, this feedback model, try this active listening model. That's not going to mean any difference. If it's not gonna make a difference, if the person isn't willing to recognize where they lack and where they're strong, and then try to make those tools fit in with that, or in some cases, completely uproot some of their underlying behaviors and patterns and recognize those and then try to make changes. So yeah, ac accepting yeah. that certain fundamental truths we've truths we've yeah. accepted may not actually be truths. Yeah. And we all have these underlying patterns and commitments, right? Yeah. That prevent us from being able to change. Um, at the end of the day, if you are like, I, I was just with a group today that, that grad that finished a, a 22 week leadership journey. Okay. Uh, and I was the facilitator for that. And there's a coach and a facilitator. If those folks are, if, if the work that they're doing with me in those training sessions, if it doesn't feel like it's heavy, if it doesn't feel like it's impact, if, if it's weighty, it doesn't feel like it's weighty. It's not going to make a difference. Yeah. So if, if when they explain to people, oh, I'm swamped, I'm stressed, I'm busy. If what we're teaching them, if what we're training them on isn't part of that busy, it's not going to make an impact. Mm. And so all that to say, we, especially through social media, are so focused on what other people are doing. And you have all these signals that you're constantly tuning into. If you're not making development from an authentic standpoint, part of that, then it's not going to make a, a big difference. So that's what I'm really passionate about just with my business is trying to get people to, to recognize those things. And it's about how you show up to other people, but not in a way that where you're putting on an image. Yeah. It's that you want well, we to go back to what we talked about. I want to make it about you. Yeah. I want to help you. So Have that servant mindset. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's interesting what you said about you want to make it meaningful but doable because yeah. if it's meaningful but not doable then it's irrelevant yeah. and if it's doable but not meaningful it mm. won't make an impact absolutely I so i do want to ask you about this you mentioned this earlier hashtag on my grind what do you think <laughs> about hashtag on my grind uh, to I, me it's the biggest load of crap ever. it is i mean so that's why i kind of say just as a, as a joke earlier yeah i i wish people would and i mean talk about something that you, you talked about something what, what scares you what what are some remedies Here's one that kind of folds in both. I think people are too busy hashtagging on my grind and they are grinding. Mm. And if they're grinding, then just grind and don't, don't hashtag it. Just do your thing. Quit playing to the wrong audience. So here in, in you, you, you asked about what scares me as a, as a father of two girls, the thing that probably scares me more than anything is that they're going to try they're going to grow up being, you know, thinking that they have to be validated by somebody else which is what that really is, right? Yep. You hashtag it. You're looking for the likes, your what hearts, shares. What I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of a, a dummy when it, intentionally when it comes to social media, um, but they're they're looking for that validation, and I'm just of the mindset that validation can't come from outside like that. It's not gonna it's not gonna be enough. And so, you know, my my advice, you know, 
I heard a, 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 a talk about this recently that was basically, you don't have to post it to prove it. Mm. You know, not my words, but just somebody, someone that I heard. And so I think that's true. I think I would just say, you know, um, to just do what you're doing. doesn't mean that you can't, you know, sort of talk about it to people or try to sell yourself in some ways that are positive. But if that's your goal, it's probably the wrong motive. Well, and it's one of those things where all I'll use money as an example and yeah. wealthy people, all the genuinely wealthy people that I know in my life, the multimillionaires, yeah. none of them look like people. If you saw them on the street where you'd be like, that's a multimillionaire. Nope, totally. They look put together. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. They look like functioning human beings. Yeah. But they're not driving a Viper yeah. or a Maserati or something. Right. They're driving yeah. normal cars, and they've got more money than the people who are driving the yeah. Viper could imagine because they leased it. Absolutely. It, you know, it's <laughs> it's when you've got that confidence yeah. to just say, I don't really care yeah. what you think. Yeah. It's more about how do I feel about myself and what I do Absolutely. on a day-to-day basis. And, and, what, and what sort of drives that accumulation of wealth, for Correct. instance, or what whether it drives it or not, what do you do with it? So- you know, one thing, for instance, is as my wife and I have been fortunate to become more successful is we've looked at as a way to, to, to give more, to mm-hmm. give to our church. And so the, the the moment you're you're able to see that perspective and not only see it, but have it like, OK, great. I can't wait. I automatically do the 10 percent where I'm going to get how much money to give to church. It loses its hold on you. Yeah. Right. It doesn't own you. It, it becomes, a um, you know, something that 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 can serve you rather than own you. Yeah. And so I, I love that. I mean, that, that's kind of my perspective on it is to, to just to, to just not make it about me or what we can do with it, so to speak. So, yeah, money is one of those things. I mean, it's a big. And, well, money is yeah. a magnifier of who you are as a person. I hate when people say uh, money makes you evil. No, no, no. You were probably already a terrible human being. Yeah. It just magnified you. Yeah. Because the rich people that I know are some of the best human beings that I've ever met Absolutely. in my life. Right. And they would also be the best human beings if they were poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it just amplifies your character traits. Um, yeah. So we're running up on time. So yeah, there, yeah. there's a question I always ask. But if you know, if you could go back to 18 year old, not Doctor Jeremy, but just uh, <laughs> uh, academic probation Jeremy, yeah. a wide eyed, bushy tailed, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself, mm-hmm. what's one piece of advice you would give him if you could go back and talk to him right now? If I'm 18, I would look back and I would say, hey, remember two years ago when you uh, when you were in the word a lot more, when you were reading your Bible a lot more, when you were involved in church a lot more? That was the place to be. Yeah, that was the place to that you started there in adolescence and you got away from it. Get back to it immediately. And that will that will answer a lot of questions that you have. It will give you perspective. It will help you with purpose. It will help you with calling. Um, and it will, it will help you in all areas of life. That's probably the biggest piece. Um, in addition to that, I would say, um, you know, just stay open-minded, stay hungry to learn, um, keep working hard. It's going to serve you eventually. Um, maybe try to be a little bit more intentional with decisions. Maybe it's also related to prayer for discernment on some decisions. Um, so I would say that those would be some, those would be some of the things. Yeah. All starting though, again, with, 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 with just getting in the word, right. I've, I've got a, just my foundation is as a, uh, as a, as a believer is, is just to, to stay in the word and then let things come from that, go from there. And I haven't always been there. And so that's probably the biggest thing. Honestly. Yeah. Give you that consistency and, and, and ability to gather from that collective wisdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I uh, appreciate you coming on. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks I'm, for having me. I enjoyed it too. I'm glad we, we got to connect. Obviously, I'll put all your information in the episode notes yeah. once I release it. But again, everybody listening, millennialmanhood.net, uh, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com. If you want to ask questions, you got people we want to interview, constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain, offer a solution, yada, yada, yada. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.